Hello and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored, episode 28 to be precise. This episode has been released on Good Friday, perhaps the most significant date on our Christian calendar. To recognise this and to help reflect on the Easter message, our analysis today is of Gift of Love. Now, not strictly an Easter piece of music, but it is often associated with Easter as it reflects on the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you and for me, that ultimate gift of love. To help us explore and reflect on that message further, we welcome the composer himself, Captain Nicholas Samuel. Also in this episode, we have the highly anticipated interview with Kevin Norbury. Avid listeners will remember that in our very first Christmas special, we welcomed Kevin to talk all about his work, Gaudete. Well, now it's time to get to know the man behind the music, and of course, sit him in the hot seat that is Bandmastermind. We'll also be welcoming a third guest for this month's instalment of Arid Island Album, to complete our Canadian trio. Any guesses who it could be? Here's Kevin, speaking back at the tail end of 2020. So Kevin, it's a real privilege to welcome you onto Fully Scored once again for this episode. Now I'm talking to you via Zoom right now, and you're coming all the way over from Canada. But you haven't always lived in Canada, have you? Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Well, I was born and raised in Andover in Hampshire. Um, It was a a medium-sized core. It was never small and it was never large um reasonably competent musical sections um my parents really encouraged and pushed me into music my father was songs leader for 35 years and in that time he also led the band on three separate occasions in addition to being songs leader my mother was also singing company leader they were both pianists um and they they encouraged my love of music which apparently sort of appeared quite early in life I think around the ages of eight or nine I I realized that I could do music if you like and that's probably what I would end up doing and uh, they encouraged me in that avenue. And what are some of your very first musical memories? When I was about three every time the Dambusters March came on to the radio I would rush and get one of those things you rest your feet on called a puffet and I'd get a knitting needle and I would stand and turn it on its side and hit the thing in time as if I was playing bass drum and uh, that was the first instrument I played in the YP band was bass drum and uh, my father bought a cornet home and uh, I showed no interest in the cornet for the longest time and in the end, he got so fed up, he said, because he, he was going off on a course. And he said, OK, if you haven't learned this instrument by the time I'm back, it's going back and we'll try you on something else. And apparently that spurred me on to get on and learn the cornet. And uh, I'm a failed cornet player, which is why I became a horn player. Uh, apologies to any people who have spent their life on horn. But yes, I, I readily admit that I'm a failed soprano cornet player. I had a few brief moments of glory, but that was it. And other than your parents, uh, is there anyone else that you can remember in particular that really inspired you to explore the path into music making? Yeah, I'd have to say my um, my two teachers, uh, 
my piano teacher was also the church organist and um he threw sight reading at me every lesson right from the very start and I've always been eternally grateful to him for giving me the ability to be able to sight read fluently and uh, the other thing was my organ teacher he taught me basically the discipline to work at technique you're probably best known for your very very fine brass compositions many of which are Favourites in Salvation Army band repertoire, such as variations on the theme of Maccabeus, Partita on St. Theodore, The Proclaimers, Rhapsody on the theme of Purcell, Truth of Flame, Odyssey, many, many more. Of course, Gaudete that we've already spoken about. But thinking right back to the beginning of that journey into composition, what initially drove you to wanting to compose? I think the first time I joined the editorial department, um, initially... I went there on a six-week probation um, under RSA. Um, and uh, at the end of that six weeks, he said to me, no, he said, would you like to stay on permanently? And of course, I said, yes, I would love that because I was absolutely in awe as a young 22-year-old being in the same offices, Ray Stedman Allen and Leslie Condon, and to, to work alongside two musicians of that caliber who were humble and um, very, very inclusive in everything that they did. And uh, just seeing the way RSA could work sort of inspired me to try. I mean, I can remember going in to his office uh, with with a score just to get his approval on a change I wanted to make. And he was sitting there with a, a round rod he used to use as a ruler just to go straight across a page, drawing out bar lines as he was talking to me um, and gave me the approval. About half an hour later, he was already writing. We hadn't heard a note from the piano whatsoever. A um, couple more times I went in during that afternoon and he was page further on, page further on. Everything was coming straight out of his head. And the next day he comes to work and throws the uh, score on Doreen Rutt's desk and asks her to start copying out parts. And it was the March God Soldiers. Uh, which I think was written for um, commissioning because um, his daughter was being commissioned that year and he'd been asked to write the commissioning march. And the commissioning march, God Soldiers, was written straight onto paper. Never heard a note of it before it was performed. And I thought, this is just amazing. I've never been with a musician this brilliant. So did you have any compositional background before you went into the uh, editorial department or was that really where you found your love of writing and developed your craft? I'd say I went through the usual tortures you go through doing a musical degree of doing um, sort of writing exercises, pastiche styles. Um, I didn't take up composition at university at all. It was, it was in the editorial department that I decided, yes, I want to try and write music. And I tried my hand. The first thing I did was 
a simple transcription of a little piano piece by Borodin called Nocturne, which is somewhere buried in a festival series. And of course, as well as brass music, you've also written lots of choral works and had those published as well. Mm -hmm. Do you find it easier writing brass music or choral music, or do you find it all very similar, the process? I find writing brass music much easier. I think when you're writing choral music, you've got the additional framework and in some respects restrictions of the words and uh, you've got to make the music match the words I think and uh, you've got to make sure that the actual words make sense uh, through the music that you write for those words so I'd say choral work is is tougher than brass band work for me personally. And so you mentioned earlier that you're a pianist and organist to a very very high standard do you find that um, having those skills in playing keyboard instruments helps your writing at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, keyboard skills are a, a basic tool in any musician's um, toolbox. Although, I mean, there are, of course, instances of composers who were never pianists who produce remarkable music. I mean, I think of Berlioz. And I also think, Salvation Army-wise, Brian Bowen would never say he was a pianist. I think perhaps in some ways he wasn't hidebound by the keyboard because keyboard players tend to see harmonies in certain patterns, hand formations when you're playing. It's all muscular memory, and you tend to think in that sort of vein when you're writing. So, yeah, I, I'd say it's influenced me, certainly. Organ playing has sort of developed a sense in me for a very strong bass line, always, as of the importance of the pedals to the organ. So, yeah. Now, talking about bass lines, when I was doing my background research for this uh, interview, I found a, a quite obscure a Dutch Wikipedia page. Now, it was about you and your music, but it also said that you won the BBC Young Musician Brass Final on Tuba in 1992. <laughs> Were you aware of that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been um, I've been amused by this all along because, of course, there is a professional tuba player somewhere in the north of England called Kevin Norbury, and it was him that won that. I I think the confusion arose because I was on the panel of regional accompanists for Young Musician of the Year for a time. And, uh, of course, the two names were in the same, if you know, the same box. And uh, I got confused. No, you would never call me a prize-winning tuba player. No. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you were a former member of the music editorial department. And I believe you were actually part of the department on two different occasions. So firstly, could you tell us a little bit about what the department was like when you were there the first time? And secondly, what were some of the changes that you saw coming back for the second time? Okay, well, the uh, music editorial department, when I first joined, it was based at SPNS in Judd Street, the old building there. We were on the third floor. Um, and uh, there were two offices partitioned off with very flimsy wooden um, boarding. One was the main one, which was where RSA had his office. Then there was the um, the communal office where the um, the minions worked. And then Les Condon also had a sort of box with a door, which was, was his office as the assistant um, head of the music editorial department. We had windows looking out onto Judd Street and uh, 
I always used to have to leave the room with the win when the window cleaner came in because the window cleaner would just stand out on the ledge and clean the windows with no visible means of support. And I just could not handle it. I had to go until he left. In those days, everything was written out by hand. The proofs appeared on green paper from uh, Jack Thompson, who did all the setting for the musical Salvationist and all the vocal music. Um, I think he was employed by Boozy and Hawks publishers that he did um, a lot of the um, musical Salvationist stuff. And uh, it always came back on green paper and green paper was considered to be restful on the eyes for proofreaders. The band manuscripts um, were sent to a place called Halston, a very, very famous um, music printing company in Amersham in Buckinghamshire and uh, they would come back to us on photographic paper and uh, everyone would signature the score when they'd read it and they'd make their markings and everything. When the proofs were ready to be finalized then Les Condon would go down to Amersham and spend the day reading and uh, one of us would accompany him and that was working on the originals for the so if uh, if you can imagine the original of a festival series solo cornet page was um could be up to three feet in length and two feet wide uh, because halston used to stencil everything it was stenciled to such a high quality that it looked like engraving and uh, we would go through and check all the um editorial markings from the second proofs to make sure that everything had been done before releasing for uh, publication and of course inevitably there's still always mistakes that get through and uh, unfortunately that's the human element in publishing when i joined the second time i was the senior editor um which meant that i was sort of supposedly um overseeing the office as it was then and uh, the office then was on the top floor of the um, old IHQ on um, Queen Victoria Street. Uh, the same procedures were followed as in the old editorial department because I was there just as Sibelius made its first appearance <clears throat> but I left there before the um, department took Sibelius on as a, as a tool. Um, the first version of Sibelius, strangely enough, was known as Sibelius 7. And it was written, it was uh, designed to be used on an Acorn computer, which was, I think, an offshoot of the BBC computer. And uh, of course, in those days, even though compared to, say, Sibelius as it is now and Dorico and those programs, it would have been very basic. Uh, it was considered an absolute marvel at the time and a time saver because, um, of course, parts are prepared now automatically from the score as you write onto Sibelius or Dorico. And there's no hand copying of parts anymore unless you like doing that sort of thing, but I don't think anybody does if they're absolutely honest. Uh, I think we all enjoy the convenience of having the part prepared for us at the same time now. Um, but basically the routine was very much the same. It was a much younger office. There were a lot of hijinks, a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of visitors come in. 
Oh, I should mention um, one of the highlights of being in the uh, old editorial office back at Judd Street was when Philip Catlinay came in um, and sat and entertained us for a full afternoon with piano transcriptions of a lot of his pieces, um, one of which was his variations on Dare to Be a Daniel. And he turned the last variation into a piano rondo, which is absolutely delightful piece. I've got the manuscript here and I'm intending to put it on to Zabalis and send it over to, uh, to editorial with a view to perhaps they should be publishing some piano music. It would be, would be a nice addition to do. Um, so I will get that done. But that was one of the highlights. Um, highlights in the other office were um, Stedman Allen was retired at that point and would come in once a week. And it was always a highlight to spend time with him because not only was he such a consummate musician, he was also such a wonderful person and fun to be with. And he enjoyed being with young people. And that was, that was a, a lovely experience we look forward to every week. Thanks for sharing those stories. So later in life, you moved across the other side of the pond to New York and went to the music department over there. How was that different to your time in London? It was different because it was the domain of one person, really. The actual publishing department of the New York department was um, just one small part of that complete entity. Ron Wakes Norris got me over there and set me up in an office with an Acorn computer and Sibelius. And I'd never used Sibelius to that point. So I was set to working on producing the American Band Journal on Sibelius. And uh, that, was, that was in itself quite an experience because, A, I was over there alone. It was a new country learning a completely new music program to produce music for the band journal and also their vocal stuff and being in effect the staff composer for the new york staff band as well so i was asked to write things at certain times uh, truth of flame was one of those that was i was asked to compose for um for the atlanta congress which was uh, a video that had been put together it was music to accompany a video originally and it started with that sort of spacey sequence which was why there was that very overt reference to star trek um yeah it was it was different insofar as i was working alone um i didn't have other people to uh, proofread um brian bowen was an external proofreader and of course brian is one of the iconic music editors having been the senior music editor at shot we talked a lot about Salvation Army music in general, but now I want to talk a bit about your music specifically. Now, for me, your music, I absolutely love playing. It's always the right amount of emotionally stirring, technical demands, but being idiomatic for the instrument and playable. I think it's stood the test of time really, really well and will always be there in Salvation Army history. Thank you. Have you got a piece that you remember most fondly writing? Yes, and it's one you haven't mentioned. It's a short devotional piece. It's called Obard. It's in the festival series. And uh, that was written at a very transitional time in my life. And um, it, uh, it features Morning Has Broken and also um, the beautiful Morning Song by Eric Ball. And... Uh, Again, it was 
written with the ISB in mind and uh, it's somewhat poignant now. I listened to it a few weeks ago um, to hear the baritone solo at the end of that piece played by Simon Burkett. And uh, that was written with him in mind as well. And uh, yeah, that piece does have a, a, a particularly fond place in my mind. As well as many of your original compositions, you've also had published many transcriptions and arrangements of orchestral music. How do you approach writing transcriptions differently than you would writing an original piece? Well, basically, I think you have to be as um, true to the original colours of the music you're transcribing as you possibly can within the confines of the limitations of the brass band. Um, you always need to have uh, solo melodies played on appropriate equivalents where possible in the band. Um, I also think that it's the, the arranger's duty to maintain the texture. Um, so much brass band, and in particular wind band music, I find is very muddy in the middle of the texture. And... Uh, I always try to maintain clarity in the middle of the texture when I'm doing a transcription so that all the individual lines can be heard. Because, of course, balance is very different in a brass band to what it is in, say, a classical orchestra. And you mentioned earlier the impact um, that Borodin had on your writing from your first transcription. But I would hazard a guess that composers such as Tchaikovsky and Purcell and Handel have also had a big impact on your writing. Is there a particular... Um, orchestral composer that you would say has influenced your writing the most or even just a favorite orchestral composer yeah? I would say the composer that most influences me from a color point of view is Berlioz I think his his orchestrations are so way ahead of the time he was writing where he he creates very very new textures in his music um uses instruments in a different way. Um, he's always been a favourite of mine, Berlioz. Now, more recently, you've been involved in music education. And I know certainly from speaking to Andrew Blythe that you had a huge influence on the development of his uh, compositional craft. Did I really? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> I don't think of our relationship like that. But anyway, that's, that's intriguing. Um, is there anything that you, from your time as a music educator, have ascertained that you wish that someone had taught you when you were learning your craft? I think the thing that I've learned when I've been writing for my own musical groups at school, I think the influence of writing educational music has made me more tempered in actually what I write. Um, as you know, out in North America, educational music is is graded, in particular band and string ensemble music is very, very strictly graded with certain criteria meeting each grade. Um, and um, I wish I'd learned from an earlier time that you learn to write for the forces that are available to you, um, not necessarily having one in mind um, above all others. Uh, try and produce music that's useful, but also perhaps inspiring. My final question for you would be, have you got any composing projects that are on the horizon as we're going forward that you're working on? My wife and I are actually 
trying to publish our own educational music and resources. Um, so I'm going to be focusing on educational music. I, I particularly enjoy writing for string ensemble. Um, I find that a very, um, very gracious um, medium in which to work. Um, <clears throat> trying to do some percussion ensemble music. Um, and myself, I have taken up a little project. I, um, I suffered through the years of my wife's elementary music teaching of listening on various occasions to classes of recorder players. And I know that in the right hands, the recorder can be an absolutely beautiful instrument. And my project is that I want to become a passable recorder player. And I've bought myself a wooden desk and alto antenna recorder, and I practice the recorder most days. And it's a very exacting instrument to play for such a basic instrument. It's, it's a challenge, which is why they sound so bad in the hands of elementary school kids. Um, <clears throat> so I'm also planning to do a book of uh, carol arrangements, simple carol arrangements for recorder and piano. So at the moment, that is my big project. Wish you all the best for that. Sounds very, yeah, very... Thank you. So now this brings us on to the section where I've got some quick fire questions for you. Uh, and these questions, some are serious, some are deliberately random and questions that I think you'll never have been asked before and probably won't oh, ever be asked again. goodness me. <laughs> the first of these questions has been sent in from Andrew Blythe. <laughs> and he wants to know why, when coming into work, was there always cows on the train line from Rygate to London, especially... <laughs> times you're writing a big piece can i say that uh i was not the only one guilty of that sort of um let's say antic certainly the office in which i worked was not conducive to getting your head down and working hard on a piece of music so um yeah sometimes it would be uh dare i say a stay at home day to continue working on the piece uh, but there were cows on the line between um, Red Hill and uh, Charing Cross, actually. Yes, it was Red Hill. And that was a genuine excuse uh, once. Anyway. <laughs> we talked about it earlier, but I'd like to really pin you down now, proverbially speaking. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? I'm sorry, it's not one, it's three. No RSA, Les Condon and Eric Ball. So a couple of either or questions for you now. Maple syrup or golden syrup? I have to say maple syrup now. Um, how about New York staff band or international staff band? <laughs> Quarry. Very political answer there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you got a favourite book from the Bible? i say Genesis. From the shared stories in Genesis. Have you got a favourite hot beverage? Hot beverage. Coffee. Um, if you could have any tube station renamed after you, which station would it be? Oh, my word. <laughs> Who came up with that one? <laughs> Hard to blame someone else, but... <laughs> uh, 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 Baker Street. Nice. Uh, would you rather visit the moon or the bottom of the ocean? The bottom of the ocean. I heard the amenities are terrible down there. Let's see. <laughs> well, they're not much better on the moon, I'm sure. <laughs> no, true. 
Um, what is your favourite key signature? From playing the piano point of view, D, D flat major. Nice. And uh, how about your least favourite colour for a car? I can only describe it as snot green. Mm. Um, and my final quick fire question for you. On a scale of one to ten, ten being agree wholeheartedly, one being couldn't care less, how much do you agree with this statement? A bag for life should be named a bag for until you mysteriously misplace it and need to purchase yourself a new one. A five. <laughs> Bang in the middle. <laughs> Always like to have a question that no one's ever going to ask ever again. And it's <laughs> from left field. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you ever so much for giving up your time to speak to us today. It's been fascinating to hear uh, insight into your life and your thoughts on, on music and Salvation Army music in particular. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed the experience. It's been fun. Thank you, Kevin, once again for your time and good humour. We'll hear from Kevin once again at the end of this episode, so stick around to see how he gets on in Band Mastermind. Now it's time to welcome Captain Nicholas Samuel to speak about his piece, Gift of Love. Well, Nick, thank you ever so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's great to have you joining us all the way from Canada. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be with you, and it's an honour to be a guest on the show. Thank you. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking through a piece that you wrote a little while ago called Gift of Love. So, as usual, I've got a few questions about the context of the piece, and then we'll delve into the score and uh, have a look through at the detail of the music and discover the message behind it also. So, my first question is, when did you come to write this piece? What was the inspiration behind it? I believe this was around 2002 uh, because I think the first time I heard it played through was because I just finished it before TMS and uh, took it with me that week in the hope that uh, whichever band I ended up in for that week would give it a run through so I could hear it in person. So I think that was uh, the summer of 2002. But it started out really just as an experiment because I... Um, it comes from my love of playing the piano for congregational singing and the way that various songs develop as you accompany them. And so this one started out as an experiment to see if there were a set of songs that came together as a selection that, that recognised the enormity of God's gift of love to us in Jesus Christ. And pairing with that, our response. And so this is what came out of that. And so it's a whole selection of songs put together that literally deals with the story of Jesus and our response to that. Fantastic. And that fits really appropriately. We're releasing this episode on Good Friday in 2022. Mm. So could you tell us a little bit more about the uh, message behind this music and the tunes and the songs that you've used to encapsulate and take the listener on that journey? Sure. I think as we analyse the score, we'll figure out which songs uh, come at which point. But it begins with the statement of King of my life, I crown thee now in the horn section and then develop through. And there's various quotes that come into the introduction as well. And then we move into Matt Redman's song once again as the main centrepiece 
to get people started on that story of Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. And then that second verse that talks about now you're exalted in the highest place. And then we move into our response, because that's followed by, may I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even the cup of grief to share, thou hast borne all for me. Lest I forget Gethsemane, thine agony for, and thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. And then there's a song by Jeff Baker. Only the second half of the first verse is used. It says, amazing mystery that he should die for me as a perfect sacrifice on the cross that's love incarnate on the cross and then a, a recap of the matt redmond song before the conclusion that brings it all together it says i bring thee all oh give thyself to me i bring thee all and so that kind of encapsulates the whole piece in one go when we recognize again that story of jesus where we're reminded in john's gospel that God so loved the world, that's you and me, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so it really is up to us how we respond to that. So my hope is that through this piece of music, Gift of Love, there is a, a framework for us to look at that says this is how I need to respond. When I say, I bring my all, yes, Lord, I want to be part of this. Powerful music, but an even more powerful message behind the music there then. So I think this would be a good time to dip into the score. And uh, could you talk us through this introduction here that introduces a few of those themes that you've just talked about up to letter A? Certainly. Um, the introduction to this is kind of setting the scene in a very picturesque way because i would dare to say that for a band that's going to play this their solo horn and flugel horn player are thinking oh no it's just us <laughs> and uh so at the beginning it's a bit of an open start for those two people and a bit more ensemble joins in but the key thing happens at bar three having heard king of my life i crown thee now there's a sudden change of key, uh, not that we put a key change in there, but we move from the original E, e flat major, bar three, all of a sudden we find ourselves hit with this C major nine chord. And uh, with the cornets and the baritones moving around in those quavers, I can say quavers in this episode because I don't have to say eighth notes to all the Canadians. Um, <laughs> I can use the proper names. So here, when we get these quavers moving around in the solar cornets and baritones, um, there's a very ethereal picture with perhaps this very sparkling regal idea as we see this king motif of Jesus crowned in glory. And that repeats again, but this time in bar six with the D flat major nine chord. So again, after thine shall be the glory be coming from the solar horn and flugel, it grows again to this D flat major nine chord and more of this sparkling imagery of perhaps a picture of heaven. 
sometimes when we're talking about heaven, when I'm uh, speaking from the platform, I've occasionally said to people that uh, what we understand of heaven from scriptures is told to us mostly from uh, John's revelation, where we create all these pictures. And John could only use the words that human beings could understand. And so if we get to heaven and find out that it's even better than that, don't be disappointed and complain. Enjoy it. And so, again, this, I, this small picture of heaven in those separated two sets of two bars, um, it's a mere attempt or portraying something ethereal and glorious. Um, so if it turns out to be better than that on the day, don't be disappointed. Fantastic. And that pretty yeah. much sort of takes us to, to about four bars before A, where we have the first iteration of the tune and uh, contemporary worship tune, Jesus Christ. Yes. So just before A, as we get to the end of this uh, verse of uh, Jenny Hussey's song, uh, Lead Me to Calvary, are these short snippet quotes where the solar cornets and first cornets are played, Lead Me to Calvary, uh, and then the flugelhorn plays twice, how marvellous, how wonderful, from that other great song. And then randomly thrown in from the soprano cornet player is just this simple reminder for two bars of thank you for saving me, which takes us into letter A that tells us how that happened. Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. I'm sure many of us know the words to that particular verse. And musically, it's a very, very simple setting. The reason is that the words are so important, we don't want to distract from that. And so it's uh, mostly in the solo horn, and then partway through it gets picked up with the first cornet as well, just as the ensemble starts to build towards the chorus. So that takes us into letter B, where we see the chorus of that tune and the harmonies and, and the texture thicken out a little bit. Can you talk us through this section? Mm. Yeah, so as we come to the chorus, um, I think musically, typically, we expect that uh, the verse would be uh, thinner scoring and then the chorus, everybody joins in, because that's what people have tended on with the old sing-alongs. Um, but the rationale here is is very similar to that it brings everybody into that but if we look at the words we also see that the first three words are and once again i look upon the cross where you died i'm humbled by your mercy and i'm broken inside once again i thank you once again i pour out my life and so here is we invite everybody in there's also a recognition that this is a story that we remind ourselves of uh, if not once a year at easter but hopefully throughout the year and there's a danger that it becomes yeah okay this happened now what and uh, so just to boost the scoring slightly and to bring everybody into that it's a reminder that once again we come back to this story but let's not forget how important it is and that everybody's included in that invitation to come and find out what it's all about for us. And as we get to the end of that chorus uh, that says, once again, I pour out my life, 
is the trombones this time that take up that little two bar motif of thank you for saving me. And then following that, the last two bars before C, the cornet symphoniums pick up the uh, little, uh, the bridge part of Matt Redmond's song that says, thank you for the cross, my friend. And that takes us into letter C for verse two. treatment of this second verse here at sea yeah i think the rationale for me musically was just to do something different that wasn't the same as the first verse um because if it's just a repeat you think well what was the point in that we could have saved five minutes but uh, really if we get to the words of that we've got now you are exalted to the highest place king of the heavens where one day i'll bow we get to be part of that. But for now, while I'm still here on earth, I marvel at this saving grace and I'm full of praise once again. It's been commented to me once or twice before, it's unusual that uh, the first cornets actually get to play the tune all by themselves for a whole verse. And uh, so that happens here through letter C with this second verse and the accompaniment is between the tubers and the trombones with a typical euphonium counter melody just happening underneath that doesn't take anything away, it just adds to a bit of movement to keep things flowing along nicely. So letter C takes us to there, where at the end of that verse that says, I'm full of praise once again, there's a few more people joining with the thank you for saving me motif. And then this time there's a very brief introduction of the next song on the cross uh, from the soprano cornet underneath in the horns and the baritones is a just a few notes reference to to thy cross i come which was the uh, fred fry song with a beautiful setting by Ivor bosanko so i've borrowed Ivor's few notes for there, just a reference, this is me coming to the cross here at this moment. And a really clever little um, link there between the two tunes and those references. So letter D, we have our next uh, tune, Lead Me to Calvary. Could you talk us through the words that you're associating here and um, a little bit through the music in this section? This is one of those moments where everything is very simplified it's taken right back to the bare bones and we end up with what's almost just a quartet for the first few bars in terms of notes on paper there might be a few more players in the band on the day uh, but at letter d we end up with the euphonium playing the melody for the first four bars with just the tubers and two horns and then there's a sustained solo cornet note over the top
And this is the final verse of uh, Lead Me to Calvary, that song that says, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even the cup of grief to share, for thou hast borne all for me. And again, this is one of those moments where I've purposely kept it right down to the absolute basics so that we don't make it all fancy and think, wow, the music was great. And then forget all about the importance of the words, because the important part is here, recognizing, Lord, I want to be part of this. Help me to be faithful. Uh, may I be willing, Lord, to bear my daily my cross for thee and so in those first four bars and it starts to build a bit more in the bars five to eight where the first cornets take over the melody again and the euphonium puts in that bit of counter melody underneath keeping it very 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 simple right the way through even into letter e again keeping it so simple with just the three parts thrown in of the sustained bass line at letter E and a two-part melody uh, in the baritones and trombones with that again the sustained solo chordate line over the top with the semi-breves over those four bars. There's nothing fancy whatsoever in there musically because the importance is lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love to me lead me to calvary and so the i think for me what is the center of this piece of music happens in the fortissimo at bar 62. <laughs> lest i forget thy love to me, lead me to Calvary. The whole band comes in and the chords are probably not what people are expecting with that particular melody uh, because uh, they're a little more complex than the original in the tune book. And that's simply just to make people sit up and think, oh, wow, I need to remember this bit. And it's lest I forget thy love to me, lead me to Calvary. And after we've had that glorious and climactic moment, that takes us to letter F, where, as you mentioned earlier, we have just the second half of the chorus on the cross. The first verse says, on the cross where the king of glory died, here is grace, here is love flowing from that wounded side. Now, I didn't manage to quote the first half of that verse uh, here in full, but I did use the second half that responds to that picture um, and I, I didn't use it because it's already described in the previous songs however these next few lines that I did use say amazing mystery that he should die for me as a perfect sacrifice on the cross on the cross love incarnate on the cross and this is just a beautiful melody that flows through with no complications at all um, it's very singable and uh, I think that's why I included it really apart from the words it's just a very singable brief moment of repose from the boldness of the previous statements through letter E 
And that begins to take us to the key change section. Absolutely, at Lethargy, where we see the chorus once again of Jesus Christ appearing here. Yes. So in those four bars before G, we've got to the end of uh, Love Incarnate on the Cross. We get these repeated motifs of on the cross through the solar cornets and uh, a couple of other places throughout. And this is the build in the key change where we go back to fortissimo at letter G, moving into G flat major. And we're confronted again with that reminder that once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. And once again, I pour out my life. And it's not a long chorus by any means, because it's only six bars long here. But it's such a, a wonderful reminder that once again, I'm back in this place, reminded of what it's all about. contrast because we've diminuendoed through the bar before h with all this movement and excitement of the fortissimo and uh, the movement of that chorus that we know well and suddenly we find ourselves with pretty much four bars of semi-briefs apart from the melody and that again is for the same reason as the previous occasions of a similar thing where the importance is of the words that go with the melody. So let's not be distracted by that. And so these four bars of semi-briefs take us to I bring thee all, the Evangeline Booth song. Oh, give thyself to me, I bring thee all. I would dare to say that in the midst of the stillness of those few bars, that the fourth bar of H musically is the hardest bar of the whole piece to play because there's only one note in it. <laughs> and somehow you've got to make some kind of music in there that goes somewhere. But also that very practical thing of don't breathe in a crescendo. I know it's one of those things that the bandmaster always shouts, don't breathe in a crescendo, but there's a reality there that, it needs to go somewhere. Don't break up that uh, momentum. And so here, yes, that's probably the hardest bar in the whole piece because you've got to the end of a four-bar phrase. Naturally, when we're looking at the lyrics, we think, oh, there's a comma there. I'm going to breathe and go for the forte that comes up. But no, we can't do that because it's got to go somewhere to make it carry over from... I bring thee all to, oh, give thyself to me, I bring thee all, and make that forte go somewhere with a big round sound. Nothing forced, but make it go somewhere with a big round sound.
in the last and final few bars of the piece, we have this very prayerful uh, conclusion that takes us to a moment of real stillness and all the music and all the movement settles onto this final pianissimo chord. Yeah, so we've had all the excitement of the uh, fortissimos and the fortes, and in particular that crescendo to the forte in the fifth bar of H, and we maintain that forte for the next three bars. And then when we get to the another two bars of semi-breves, we decrescendo. And here, again, we go right back to that stillness, where in the place of amazement, it's like that story in the Old Testament where we're reminded that Elijah is in the cave and uh, there's all the busyness and the lightning and the everything else happening around him. And we're reminded the Lord was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He wasn't in the fireworks of all the stuff of what was going around us. But we find him in that quiet moment of, oh. oh. And so here, where we come down to that, piano the lord is in the stillness and we find ourselves back in that place where there's just four bars of semi-breves but underneath that the trombones have got this motif from don moen's song that says no greater love than this and they repeat that again as a reminder no greater love than this at which point it comes to a conclusion and in that stillness the pianissimo final chord is that place where we meet with Christ where we've come to that conclusion and we've recognized for ourselves that yes I've been through all the excitement of singing all the songs but now I'm going to put it into real action into real life what does it mean for tomorrow what does it mean on the Monday after Easter Sunday? And hopefully we go ahead with the same intention of the promises we made the previous day. And hopefully we go ahead with the same amazement that we explored the previous day as we saw the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that it is all God's gift of love for every one of us. Thank you, Nick, and thank you ever so much for sharing and uh, exploring that message with us, that message that we see at Easter, but as you said, um, applies for every single day of the year as well. Really yeah. appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, Nick, for taking us through that meditative work and for exploring the accompanying message further. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, we have another guest coming from Canada for our Arid Island album. And I wonder if you managed to guess correctly who it would be. Congratulations and give yourself a pat on the back if you guessed it would be Marcus Venables. Let's chat to Marcus now. Well, Marcus, thank you ever so much for joining us on Fully Scored. How are you keeping? Uh, doing great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, just uh, living life here in Toronto, Canada, enjoying the new spring weather. 
excellent stuff. When you say spring weather, does it go above zero degrees Celsius? <laughs> well, it, it does, yeah. The snow melts away, and then uh, springtime is about 13, 14 Celsius, uh, and then the occasional heat wave that comes through. So no, not as much rain as uh, England. <laughs> Sounds positively tropical there. <laughs> And congratulations as well in the last few days. It's been announced that you'll be uh, the acting assistant territorial music secretary for the Canada and Bermuda Territory. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, really thrilled and uh, excited to take on this uh, role for the next 18 months uh, under Heather Osman. She's going to be the uh, territorial music secretary. And yeah, just really grateful to, to take this on and, uh, you know, continue on certain projects that we've been working on over the number of years and then take on a few new things and bigger items fantastic sounds very exciting and uh, wish you all the best for that indeed now many people will know you from your name on the top right hand corner of music and uh, certainly becoming more and more frequent for bands all around the world at the moment just very briefly are you working on any new projects at the moment uh nothing uh pressing at the moment there's obviously a few passion projects that are sort of collecting dust as it were uh just finished up a piece recently that uh, is a finalist for the river city brass uh composer competition in pittsburgh uh so that's a that's a major work uh called awakening and uh fingers crossed uh it is the winner but but we'll see it's it's up to the audience vote to judge that sounds very exciting and look forward to hearing it at some point so that brings us on to the all-important question now for Arid Island album. If you were stuck on a deserted and arid, isolated island in the middle of nowhere and you could take one album with you, what album would it be and why? Well, uh, assuming it's, uh, you know, we have the technology on that island and all this kind of stuff, um, St. Magnus, my all-time favorite uh, recording by the International Staff Band. I think it was 2006, uh, so I was, uh, I was about 15 when it came out, and uh, I had been a big fan of Kenneth Downey music uh, leading up to that um, time, and then uh, hearing that album come out was just absolutely mind-blowing, specifically because, you know, you've got this St. Magnus test piece that uh, just really pushed the envelope uh, for Kenneth's writing really uh, but also for it's not a Salvation Army band piece but it has certain Salvation Army band music uh, tropes in it uh, but push that envelope uh, harmonically, technically, all that kind of things. But then that's contrasted with the immense like beauty and just uh, simplicity of some of the other selections on there. Um, thinking of He Can Break Every Fetter, that classic general series piece, and, and then even uh, Take Time, right? A simple setting, and yet that little bit of Kenneth Downey uh, twist in there that is just infused with so much harmonic interest and depth and the scoring textures and everything. Uh, and then The Father's Blessing as well, uh, a festival series kind of Sunday morning type selection with a tam-tam and like texture galore all the way through there. So there's so much in there on that recording that I just uh, couldn't get enough of. And uh, I remember putting it into my Windows Media Player on my desktop computer, and that would keep track of the amount of plays that, uh, that it had. And uh, that definitely led the charge back in 2006 and beyond. Fantastic, and what a great choice, so a great CD there. 
thank you very much for giving up your time and joining us today. And I very much hope that we'll be able to hear from you again in the future. Thanks so much. Appreciate having me. Thanks, Marcus. Another excellent album choice. Now, it's what you've been waiting for. It's time for Band Mastermind. Please welcome Kevin Norbury to the hot seat. And let me tell you, it's absolutely scorching today. So, Kevin, you'll have exactly one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band and music trivia questions as you can. Kevin Norbury, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am. Your time starts now. In 1888, what defining event brought traditional Salvation Army banding to Canada? Pass. Okay, in 1948, the Canada and Bermuda Territory established a music department. Who was the first leader of the department? Pass. Who originally published Eric Ball's work, Resurgum? Um, a company based in Watford. Um, right and round. Uh, unfortunately, that's incorrect. In which year did Eric Ball pass away? Pass. Okay, what number in the festival series is Leslie Condon's The Present Age? Pass. On the trombone, what is the alternative slide position for a G played in the first position? Four. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. What's another name for the timpani? Kettledrum. Correct. <laughs> Moving on to the next question. Which uh, Hollywood film composer wrote the song with Bonners and Bannets? Sorry, with Bannets and Bonnets, <laughs> musical salvationist in 1964. Meredith Wilson. Correct. Which USA band had a photo with Albert Einstein before the Rose Bowl parade in 1932? Uh, Hollywood Tabernacle. Oh, so close. I think you're about to say it. Uh, which Salvation Army professor and composer was a renowned authority on Spanish Renaissance composers, Thomas Louis de Victoria? Thomas Rive. Correct, and the time has just gone off there, so I'll give you that point. So that gives you a total of three questions correct, which means you're not on the bottom of the leaderboard, which is goodness. <laughs> is this like Top Gear? <laughs> so I'll just whiz through the answers of the ones that you didn't quite get. In 1888, the defining event that brought traditional Salvation Army Band into Canada was the visit of the Household Troops Band, in 1948, the Canada and Bermuda Territories Muda Department had the first leader, who was Percy Merritt. Resurgum was originally published by R. Smith. That's the name I couldn't think of. I, I said right and round, didn't I? Yeah. So close, so close. Yeah. Uh, mm. And Eric Ball passed away in 1989 on the 1st of October. Oh, my goodness. Is it that long ago? Yeah. Wow. Um, the number... The number for the present age in the festival series is 342. I was going to say 324. So close. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> close, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, the alternative slide position on a trombone for a G is sixth position. And then um, the question you nearly got, I heard loss just come out. It was Los Angeles Sizzle Band that had a photo with Albert Einstein before the Rose Bowl parade. Oh, right, okay. So, so close there. So, thank you ever so much once again for your time. 
Okay, I'm thoroughly chastened now. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, then why not leave us a review to boost this podcast up the ratings so that more people may be able to discover it. If you're not already, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to keep up the latest podcast news and releases, plus sometimes some extra bonus content. Before we go, as always, time for a few thanks. Thank you to our wonderful trio of guests, Kevin, Nick and Marcus. Thanks for giving up your time and your thoughts. It really is appreciated. Thank you to Simon Gash, our producer. Without you, we wouldn't have a podcast. Thank you to the mystical band nerds for their help with the band mastermind trivia. And finally, thank you to you, our listener, for lending us your ears. You can have them back now. Goodbye and God bless. Goodbye.